Hello, thank you for joining LTC NAC Chat, a podcast brought to you by the American Association of Post-Acute Care Nursing, APACN. I'm your host, Amy Stewart, Vice President of Education and Certification Strategy for APACN. I'm here today with Jesse McGill, Curriculum Development Specialist with APACN. Jesse joins us to discuss CMS's recent release of the draft MDS 3.0 Nursing Home Comprehensive Item Set and the changes skilled nursing facilities can expect and should plan for before October 2023. Welcome, Jesse. Thanks, Amy. It's always good to join you. Let's dive in, Jesse. CMS recently released an updated MDS Comprehensive Item Set that is set to become effective October 1, 2023, and it has caused quite a stir. But before we get into that, nurse assessment coordinators who began their careers in the past two years have not experienced an MDS item set update. Can you start with explaining when and how these updates usually occur? I am so glad you're starting with that question, Amy, and you are correct. So many NACs have started their career in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, working with temporary waivers. And now as we're getting back to normalcy, we've gone through over two years with no significant changes to the MDS and only minor revisions to our current item set. And so now as we're getting ready to have an end to the public health emergency, it's time to start talking about what these updates look like and what usually happens. So Pre-pandemic, I'll start there because that's the easiest to use, we would have annual updates. So typically what we would see is a draft item set with technical specifications released in quarter one. Now, the reason we had the technical specifications released so early is so that software providers could get the MDS modules up to date and tested before that October implementation. And then we usually saw updated REI user's manual and the final item sets released in late summer, July through early September. And this is where the facilities then had time to look at the coding instruction changes, all the changes to the different item sets, and prepare to implement those changes effective October 1st. Now, one of the other things that can impact annual updates is the SNF PPS rulemaking. And we've continued to see that every year. And actually during the pandemic, we had not only the SNF PPS rulemaking, we also had a few interim final rules that were released to address really specific issues to help facilities get through that pandemic phase. Now, what we normally see with that rulemaking process is a proposed rule in spring and then a final rule either late July or very early August. And sometimes these will impact the NAC position because it has to do with the Medicare reimbursement. So it may change some of the items related to Medicare payment on the SNF or for the SNF QRP items. It could be items added for the SNF quality reporting program QRP for those type measures. Now, right before the pandemic, it was actually a very early release of a MDS item set. So December 2019 is when CMS released the last updated item set, which was version 1.18.1. Now, a lot of NACs may not be familiar with what item sets we're using for the MDS, but it is important to know the item set because it helps to compare and know what assessments are used at what time. 
So right now we're using MDS item set version 1.17.2. So back in December 2019, we were going to prepare for version 1.18.1, which was set to go into effect October 1st, 2020. Now, of course, a lot of items happened between December 2019 and through the first part of 2020. So one of the major changes that we saw that CMS had planned to implement October 2020 was a lot of the spades items and the retirement of Section G, as well as the transfer of health information measures. So when I talk about spades, this is your standardized patient assessment data elements. And this is part of the SNF QRP program. It is standardized data that can be compared across the different post-acute care settings. Now, a few things happened early 2020. CMS had a lot of stakeholder feedback because of the removal of Section G and because Medicaid payment models that use Section G had a very short window to make changes. And so CMS said, okay, because of this stakeholder concern, we're going to put this on hold. But then in light of the public health emergency, they said, we're going to put this entire item set on hold. So not just the removal of Section G, but all of it as we get through this public health emergency. And originally, they said they would not restart this item set until two full fiscal years after the end of the public health emergency. However, I don't think they really anticipated the duration of the public health emergency. And now we are at a point where we do need to move forward and start collecting this data. Thank you for that overview. And I agree. I don't think any of us at the start of the pandemic thought we would still be battling outbreaks two and a half years later. So you said CMS has released the 1.18.1 item set back in December of 2019, but then placed that item set on hold, and now they have released a new version, 1.18.11, correct? That is correct, Amy, and there is a lot of confusion with this because it's a very similar item set, but it's not the same. So the item set that we're seeing now, which is a draft item set scheduled to go into effect October 1st, 2023, is similar to what CMS had originally released planning for October 2020, but there are some changes. So the important thing to realize right now is we have our current item set 1.17.2, And this is the item set that we will continue to use through this October. There's no item set changes coming this October. And that 1.17.2 that we're using today will continue all the way through September 30th, 2023. And effective October 1st is when the new item set 1.18.11 will go into effect October 1st, 2023. When we talk about changes in item sets, knowing that you have a very hard cutoff date with any ARD, with an ARD up until September 30th, 2023, we'll use our current item set, and any ARD with a date October 1st, 2023 and later, we'll use the 1.18.11 item set. I mentioned earlier that this item set has caused quite a stir particularly regarding the removal of Section G from the MDS. How do you recommend NACS prepare for this very substantial change? A substantial change is a great description for the retirement of Section G. 
there has been so many changes to the MDS over the years. So when we talk to NACs and we talk about change, one thing that I see in a lot of trainings is the only thing that's constant is change. We can always expect change when it comes to the MDS. But Section G, ADLs, is one of the items that has been consistent over time. So it was present on MDS 2.0. It carried through for the MDS 3.0. And it's used in care area triggers. It's used in the indicators of the care area worksheets. It's used in the numerator and in the exclusions for different quality measures. And some states still use Section G for their payment model calculations. Additionally, some states use Section G in performance incentive programs. So there's a lot of ways that Section G has been integrated into other areas besides the MDS. So when we talk about this being a very substantial change, that is so true. NACs need to start preparing now for this major MDS change. And I would say start with talking to your leadership and communicating these changes and explaining to your leadership how Section G and the removal of Section G has the potential to impact all of these different items. For the NAC, it might be really easy to understand the significant impact of the removal of Section G, but your clinical leadership and your nursing home administrator may not have that same understanding of exactly how widespread the impact of Section G is. So one of the first things to do is talk about budgeting training and professional development. So this would be definitely training for the NAC, training on those MDS changes, training on how this will impact in those quality measures and those cause and the care plan, and really looking to enhance training for the next several months as we get closer to October 2023. The other thing to talk about is that this is not just an impact on the MDS department. These changes involve the entire clinical team. So there has to be not only training for the NAC budgeted, but training for the clinical leadership and training for the direct care staff. So a couple of things that we're going to see October 1st, 2023, data collection for the transfer of health information. Now what this is, is a process measure for this NIF QRP program, and it collects information on MDS on whether or not a reconciled medication list was provided at the time of discharge, either to the patient or caregiver or to the next provider, depending on that discharge situation. So if the resident discharged home, the transfer of health would be to the resident or a caregiver at that home, or if they're transferring, say, to another SNF or to the hospital at that time of discharge, we need to provide that reconciled medication list. Now, the NAC is not going to be the one who is going to be providing those discharge instructions and providing that reconciled medication list at that time of discharge. The NAC needs to be able to look at the medical record documentation and be able to see the process that occurred and how that information was provided to the resident or the next provider so that that process can be coded on the MDS. So what this is going to take is it's going to take overall a clinical process and a process of how this information is documented in the medical record so that we can easily show that we have this process in place reflected on the MDS. Another thing to consider is that beyond the NAC and beyond the clinical team, 
there also could be updates required to policies and procedures. Now, this could also trickle down into additional trainings for your nurses and your direct care staff, but this also will take an extensive policy review. So a great example is the PHQ-9, which is our mood interview. This is going to change October 1st, 2023 to the PHQ-2-9, to which means if the resident answers no to the first two questions, the interview is over and we only do two questions. But if you have a policy that states that you use the PHQ-9 to assess the resident's mood status, this is going to need to be updated as of October 1st, 2023 to include the PHQ-2-9. to This is a great point. Even though the changes are to the MDS, which the NAC is the coordinator of, it will require strong collaboration with the Director of Nursing Services and the clinical team. Are there any other new items that will involve the clinical team in addition to the NAC? Yes, and great question. So we're seeing more and more that the NAC is an extension and a reflection of the clinical team. So the NAC's responsible for coding the MDS, but they can only code what's reflected in the medical record and the documentation. So the NAC is very involved with this process. They're often the ones completing many of the resident interviews, and they may be out on the floor talking and interviewing staff to better understand what was documented in the medical record but it really relies heavily on the clinical team and other interdisciplinary team members to document what has occurred, document what was assessed and what was observed. So when we talk about what's changing on the MDS, uh, section O is a great example of this. So previously the NAPWIC code, if a resident received chemotherapy for cancer treatment while a resident or while not a resident, and for both of these categories, it was a 14-day look back. So while a resident was anything that occurred after entry into the facility, and while not a resident was what occurred within the 14-day look back before the resident was entered into the facility as our resident. So now we have an expansion of these items. However, the expansion of these items only apply to a certain window. So now we have chemotherapy that's still coded the same way it was before. But now in addition, we have chemotherapy if it was administered IV, orally, or received in another route. Now this detail is only going to be documented during the first three days of the Medicare stay and during the last three days of the Medicare stay. During the other window, which we no longer have while not a resident, or we will not as of October 1st, we'll only have while a resident in the last 14-day look-back period, that longer look-back period does not include those detailed information. So we're still going to code on the general term of chemotherapy, but the by route, IV, oral, or other is only going to apply to that Medicare resident during those first three days of the stay and the last three days of the stay. Now, this is the same for those look back periods. It's the same for oxygen. And we're still going to code oxygen for that 14-day look back period on all assessments. But for your Medicare Part A stay, the first three days and the last three days, we're also going to expand this to include documentation on if the oxygen was continuous, intermittent, or high concentration. So another example, 
section in. This is another one that has a pretty significant change coming October 1st, 2023. So we had an expansion of categories for the medication type. So we're going to be adding antiplatelet and hypoglycemic type medications to the MDS October 1, 2023. Now, one of the other really big changes, and this is a really big clinical impact, is that we also will be coding on the MDS that there was documentation for indication for all medications in that category. So when we have a medication order, of course, we should have an indication of use associated with that medication. However, this is an item that, of course, the, the NAC is not going to be the one to take all the orders to make sure we have an indication of medication in place. But what the NAC should be doing is being aware of these changes. So we know these changes are coming in October. And when we come across a medication today, anytime between now and next October, come across a medication that does not have an indication of use in the medical record, we need to bring that to the clinical leadership, the director of nursing or whoever's in charge of making sure these processes are in place and improving those processes so we can use the next several months to educate and audit to ensure we have the detailed documentation to support that more detailed information like the route of chemotherapy, the more detailed information about the type of oxygen, as well as this detailed information on medication indication of use so that when we get to October, we've already addressed a lot of the gaps we've seen, and now we have documentation in place and a strong process among all of the nurses that are taking new orders and ensuring that every time a new order for medication is placed into the medical record, they've also worked with the physician to assign the indication of use. Those are great examples of a need for collaboration with the clinical team. I can also see the indication of use being a way for surveyors to easily identify inappropriate medications. I know CMS also has a goal of addressing social determinants of health, and it sounds like there were a few items added to the MDS to help achieve this goal. Yes, there are several of the SPADES items that were added to address social determinants of health. Now, these are also items that are only coded on the five-day and a planned Medicare PPS discharge. So since the spades are part of the SNF QRP program, this is a focus on Medicare Part A residents. When we talk about SNF QRP, all this information is collected on your Medicare residents on the five-day or PPS discharge. So while this information is really important and it could be applied to all residents, at this time, these spades only apply to our Medicare residents. So one of the changes we'll see next October is addition of health literacy. And this particular health literacy question that will be added to the MDS states, how often do you need to have someone help you read instructions, pamphlets, or other written material from your doctor or pharmacy? And right now we don't have the coding instructions for this, but since we are assessing at the start of the stay, and at the end of this day, we can make some broad assumptions that we're going to assess this at the beginning of the stay to see if there was a problem before admission to the SNF. And then we're going to assess this at time of discharge to make sure we can help with a successful discharge plan. Another social determinant of health that was added to the MDS for next October assesses transportation. And it asks the question, has lack of transportation kept you from medical appointments, meeting, work, 
or getting things for daily living. Now again, assessed at the beginning and at the end of the Medicare stay. So we can likely assume that we're going to be assessing if this was a problem before they came into the SNF, and then at the end of the skilled stay, making sure we address this before the resident goes home. And so again, these are just two examples of the social determinants of health. Another item that was added is social isolation. But again, we don't have the coding instructions at this time. So we have only what's on the MDS item set, which gives us only part of the entire picture. I see the social determinant of health spade items potentially have a significant impact on discharge planning. What else do you see these impacting? So that's a great point. And I kind of alluded to that where we have to take this information and it's not just collecting this information so it can be put into a database. You know, that's always part of it because we're going to be submitting these assessments to CMS. But also, what are we doing with this information? So it's when we look at the beginning of the stay, and we ask ourselves, what are we doing with this information? How can we use the social determinants of health information during the Medicare stay to help the resident have a successful return to community at the end of the Medicare stay? So when we talk about health literacy and if we had a resident come in and they said, yes, I often need help reviewing information from doctors or pharmacists and we can work with them to better understand what those barriers are and help develop a plan that we can implement and carry through that discharge to help improve their health literacy and better understand the types of medications they're taking, what the physician you know, might be communicating to them. And we can help identify those barriers and help the resident overcome those during the Medicare stay. The other item with the transportation, again, if this is something that was identified at the beginning of this day, this should be something that's included as part of our discharge planning. And of course, when we talk about discharge planning, that discharge planning should start at admission, but we can also incorporate this into our care plan. So what are we doing during the Medicare stay to address their transportation issues so that when we are ready for discharge, we have a plan to address the barriers of transportation to health appointments or to their doctor appointments, to the pharmacy, and we can have a plan in place of how this transportation will be handled post-discharge. Now, with a strong focus on readmission and preventing rehospitalization after we discharge a resident back to the community, having these social determinants of health addressed in our care plan and with our discharge plan can really help us achieve a successful return to the community and keeping that resident safe in the community and not having a readmission. With all these changes, I'm sure we could talk for much longer, but for this brief podcast, what do you think are important steps our listeners can start doing now to help prepare for these changes? Oh, I know I already mentioned it, but I'll stress here again how important it is to work with the leadership and communicate and really keep that line of communication ongoing and open through next October. So if you talk to your leadership now and you're like, hey, we're going to need some training next year for all these MDS changes, and you don't say anything again until next September, it's going to really be a crunch to try to get everything changed and audited and in place by that time. So be aware of what type of training is out there and start looking at a way you can incorporate these changes starting even now to work towards these goals. 
So I would recommend starting by reviewing all the changes just to become familiar with the type of information that is needed. A PACN has recently published an article in a comprehensive chart reviewing all of these changes, and we can put a link to that tool in the podcast description so that's really easy for you guys to find. So the next step would be over the next several months, start identifying those gaps and working with your clinical leadership to update policies, procedures, and educate nurses. So as you're going through and you're completing these MDSs, if you see therapy orders that do not currently indicate whether it's continuous or intermittent or high concentration, make sure this is added to your policies or procedures or possibly even integrated into your software so that the nurses, when they're putting in these orders, they are addressing the type of oxygen therapy or the other details for, say, chemotherapy and the other items that were expanded in Section O. Another thing to monitor is medication. So as you're completing the MDSs over the next several months and you come across medications that do not have an indication of use, that's a problem today. This is already part of our regulations that we should have an appropriate reason for all medication use. And so this is something that we do want to bring to the attention of the director of nursing right away so that these gaps and these items that will need to be coded next October can be addressed now and those processes can be improved. Another big one is Section G. Now, gearing up for the Section G removal is going to be a big change. And one of the things that you can start with as you're going through your care plans now, so we have a full year of care plans that we can start to review and modify to make sure that if we're using Section G-specific language, that we can update that to language that's more neutral and would work with either Section G or GG. So, for example, limited assist. When we talk about limited assist, this is a Section G descriptor. We do not use the term limited assist in Section GG. However, we can use more descriptive terms of what limited assist actually is or really describing the type of care that resident needs for limited assist. So non-weight bearing support or guided maneuvering, contact guard assist, all of those describe that limited assist, which is a non-weight bearing type of assist. And if we use more of those descriptor terms, they can be applied to either G or GG. So we can update those now and our care plans will stay accurate through the transition of the retirement of G and moving to GG as our only assessment of function. Speaking of GG, this is going to be a training need. Now, for your direct care staff, if they're not currently working with Section GG, this is something we're probably going to want to wait closer to October 1st to start training the direct care staff because, of course, we still need to accurately code and document the Section G ADLs all the way through September 1st, 2023. But to help you start preparing, a PACN does have some great training and education to help improve your comfort with Section GG. And one of these trainings is the Section GG Train the Trainer, which prepares a staff member in your facility to be able to train Section GG to all the direct care staff. So that's a course that you can consider taking to help gain confidence and to have the materials to be able to train team members on Section GG. The last thing I would like to say is that the transition from G to GG is a good thing. Having two vastly different functional assessments 
is a huge area of confusion. It's a huge area where we have conflicting documentation because of the differences of how Section G and GG is coded. And I have heard stories from members where they've had problems with surveyors and other situations because of the differences between G and GG. So having one functional assessment, one set of instructions is going to help improve the overall accuracy of functional assessment in the long run. So it is a very big barrier to overcome, but overall it's going to be a really good change to have one assessment of function and not two vastly different assessments. Thank you for this great information, Jesse. It will be so helpful for our listeners as they prepare for these changes. Listeners, thank you for joining us today. For more resources and tools for the Nurse Assessment Coordinator, please visit our website at www.aapacn.org. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the LTC NACCHAT podcast. Heard the news about how you can improve quality care and increase efficiency with Ability? Ability offers a range of applications to simplify the complexity of healthcare, allowing organizations of all types and sizes to spend more time on care and less time manually collecting, analyzing, and reporting data. This allows you to remain in compliance while making data-driven decisions that benefit residents. With Ability, your facility can improve resident outcomes, optimize reporting data, enhance reimbursements, and much, much more. Discover what Ability has to offer at AbilityNetwork.com slash a pack-in.